welcome to the EMS Nation podcast. We are live from Sundsvall, Sweden, day two, the final day of the Tactical Trauma Conference hosted by our very good friend, Fredrik Granholm. We have reassembled an expert panel to talk about the entire day and bring the highlights, the tips, the tactics that you can take home with you to help incorporate into your medical practice and elevate your own game. So without further ado, here is our panel. Hi, I'm Mark Forrest. Uh, I'm an anaesthetist intensivist and medical director of fire and police in the UK, uh, Twitter handle at OBDoc. Hi, this is Rick Dutton. I'm the chief quality officer at U.S. Anesthesia Partners in Dallas uh, at Trauma Dinosaur. Hi, I'm Kasia Hampton. I'm an ear doc currently working at the U.S. Army Hospital in Landstuhl, Germany, at Twitter handle at KasiaMD. Susan Brundage, Professor of Trauma Education at the Royal London in London um, and Trauma at Trauma Masters. Leilani Doyle, I'm a uh, Canadian anesthesiologist in the uh, military. I do forward surgical care as well as uh, helping set up some of our forward aeromedical evacuation capabilities. Twitter handle at Doyle Leilani. Hi, Mike Laurie here, uh, former PJ in the Air Force, currently flight paramedic and fourth year medical student. At Resus Padawan is my Twitter handle. Hi, I'm Andy Johnston. I'm a military intensivist in Birmingham, UK. Um, my Twitter handle is Army Crit Care. So, day two, who is the first speaker? And I think you can deduce or decipher a lot about both the conference as well as how heavily populated the conference is at the first lecture post dinner, right? So, our headliner today was none other than Risas Padawan himself, Mike Loria. And what I want to probe you on is, you know, we've seen throughout the years, hardcore medical conferences have hardcore medical talks. We're talking about the anatomy, the physiology, the ventilator management, optimizing pre-hospital care, protocols, logistics, operations, etc. But you've really been passionate about performance psychology and thinking about the decision-making process on a daily basis or on a regular basis, not just when you have your sickest patient. What really prompted you to develop this interest, this area of study and expertise, Mike? So I think it was the fact that um, I had seen many very brilliant clinicians, many uh, brilliant tacticians that knew and understood and had this tremendous knowledge base, but it didn't seem to matter exactly how smart you were or how you could recite things uh, in a room like this when we're sitting around with one another. There was this huge chasm between what what the evidence said, what people were talking about, what is possible, and what actually goes on day to day in the field or in the trauma bay. And when I really started to think about it and started to look at it, what I realized was that chasm, at least I think, is uh, can be bridged by looking at some of the other elements of how we carry out care. So looking at the logistics, looking at human factors, looking at how we think about problems, looking about how stress and environment and other things affect how we apply all these things that we know to be very effective. And I think that that's one of the next steps in optimizing care and really improving things is seeing how we can connect theory with reality and daily application. So early on in your lecture, you started by talking about the decision-making process 
either a fast or almost instinctual response by a clinician versus a slower, more deliberate, thought-out process. So tell us more, why is that even important, and how is that relevant to improving our care as individual providers or clinicians, whether in hospital or out? So I think it's, it's, it's very important to understand both the theoretical fl- framework of how we understand these concepts and therefore implications for training and how we end up applying these things again in real life. So what I think is interesting is that uh, over time there's been various camps that have evolved and uh, there's actually good evidence on sort of both sides of the fence in terms of this faster intuitive decision-making process that Daniel Kahneman calls system one and the more analytical process which is a little bit slower but certainly more precise in certain cases, and uh, and came across system two. And there's been a lot of argument back and forth, especially in the human factors world, about which one is better or which one is, is really good. And I don't think that's the question. I think it's the wrong question. The question is, when is that more appropriate? When is one of those systems more appropriate? And how do you use those two together? And I think one of the main points that I tried to drive home today was that it's really a false dichotomy. We really use both, and the better we understand these systems and how they work and what the advantages and disadvantages are, we can better train those systems to apply them in the real world. Fascinating. How does this apply in a trauma application or in dealing with a a traumatically ill or injured patient? Uh, The fat man's rule. We were talking about the house of God earlier, right? (laughs) In a code situation, first take your own pulse. I was thinking of that as you were talking. That's the recalibration. So in regards to the OODA loop, I think that warrants some definition. What the heck is an OODA loop? We've heard ton- tons about this in the social media sphere. Uh, what's the definition? And again, I think, how do we incorporate this tool to help ourselves become better clinicians? So the tool was uh, originally developed by a fighter pilot named John Boyd. What he realized with that was that the traditional ways that we teach people about decision-making um, were either flat out wrong or didn't apply or were not helpful in situations when, you know, you're flying hundreds of miles an hour and engaged in a dogfight. I think that's directly applicable to the things that we see because as we know, in critical injuries and critical disease, critical illness, sometimes these things, especially in acute and hyperacute situations, are evolving so fast that you don't have time to get all the information. You don't have time to get lab tests. The patients are deteriorating in front of your, uh, right in front of you. And you have to be able to make decisions at a pace that is faster than um, we traditionally teach clinical decision-making in medical school uh, and in uh, training after medical school. So I think what Boyd did very in a very intelligent way was begin to break down the steps of how, number one, how you make those decisions, and number two, how you can develop training and structure your own personal development to make that decision-making process faster. Um, and I thought that was very interesting coming from a non-academic to take a very academic approach to something that was very practical. And I think in some cases that it's very helpful in medicine to take a similar approach. 
look at things from a very practical experiential standpoint, and then add in shades of academia that allow us to really look at the science and the evidence behind things to uncover how we can apply tools like the OODA loop to improve ourselves. And for reference, one of the things they forgot to do was actually define what the OODA loop was. And uh, that loop that Boyd talks about stands for, it's O-O-D-A, OODA, and it stands for Observe, Orient, Decide, and Act. And what Boyd believed, his theory, was that essentially you take in information from the world around you, you process that information, so you orient, so you either pattern match it to something you see in the past, or perhaps you, you analyze it in a very structured manner, based upon that analysis, you decide on the course of action. You take action, and then based upon the effects of whatever action you take, you begin to observe things again. And you continually go through this cycle during a resuscitation or during a dogfight or wherever you're doing. And that can help you accelerate your decision-making process and hopefully get ahead of either the bad guy or the disease process. So that's that's a little bit like the NASA bold phase where it's something you've just got to do. You don't have to do a lot. There's not a lot of thought involved. It's, you know, door of the spaceship's open, the tube's disconnected, <laughs> you know, the room's on fire. You just instinct, instinctively do something, whereas other things may take a little longer to go through. Is, is, is that all part of that? I think it's part of it in a sense that in very emergent circumstances or circumstances where there's something very obviously wrong, that you don't necessarily have to think about, well, I wonder how the endotracheal tube became dislodged. Just connect it, <laughs> yeah. right? And then we can worry about that exactly. stuff down the line. Yeah. So I think it, it absolutely is, yeah. So that's a great point. The frequency of your OODA loop can be variable dependent on the disease process itself. So in other words, how often are you reassessing? And I think as human beings, we have a tendency to anchor or bias cognitively. And certainly in the recess day, we can become anchored to a particular diagnosis, which may in fact not be correct. But employing the OODA loop and using objective data for reassessment can certainly help your patient and help you break free from that sort of cognitive bias. The, the pattern recognition is very important for the fast action when you need fast action. I used to teach my residents the one-second look. As the patient rolls by me in the resuscitation, you just Into look at the them. Bed. And if, if you do this, stand up and do, go with that instinct because you matched a pattern there, there's something really wrong and you probably have something to do. But at the same time, you have to be able to break out of the pattern when it's inappropriate or it's not working. And that's where the, the metacognition or the mindfulness is important to say, wait, I need to step out, think about it, try again. Mm -hmm. I think you're, you're absolutely right, too, about the, the frequency. For example, one of the aha moments I had was I had seen uh, a friend of mine who was a, a fighter pilot, and he had video footage of during training. I mean, they're screaming across the sky and, and doing these training engagements. And you see him constantly looking down, constantly looking around, down, around. And he said what basically he was doing was you're constantly checking in for instruments and then scanning around you. And when it clicked was I was actually working with an anesthesiologist who was resuscitating a very, very sick trauma patient. And he was explaining afterward um, how the sicker the patient is, the faster his scans go through from the tube, looking at the patient all the way back to the anesthesia machine, looking at the monitor, all the vital signs and everything else. And he said, essentially, in an active resuscitation, it's constant. The frequency is on the order of 
seconds. He is constantly looking back and forth at all those parameters, especially when he's giving medications or doing things that might alter any of those physiological parameters. Seeing those similar behaviors and adapted skills by both of those gentlemen had never read anything. That was adapted technique that they had learned through experience and through their mentors. Uh, I really thought there was something there. It's interesting the way a trauma resuscitation bay functions in the U.S. is different from the way it functions in the U.K. So in the U.S. it's a lot more what Rick talks about and come in as a trauma surgeon and have that scan and, and do the UDA all the time subconsciously. The UK is very structured, and particularly in the military, we'll have seen the difference between the, the way the US military and the UK behaves. There's a real trauma team leader, and they are tasked with running the room. Do you think that, for those of you that know that, and Rich is smiling, do you think that the trauma team leader has the ability to UDA, or do you think they're too task-oriented? It's a good question. I've seen both. And the contrast can be marked. Uh, you've seen a trauma resuscitation at shock trauma, which mm -hmm. 20 times a day, very expert environment, and it's a complete scrum. And it's, it, look, it looks like utter chaos if you just walk up on it, but it is very fast and will get to the right answer very quickly as opposed to the very regimented approach, which I've seen in other trauma centers where one person's in charge and only one person at a time is talking and it's you know going stepping down the list that will also get to the right answer, but often a lot slower, but you don't miss anything. And I think a lot of that has to do with expertise and experience at some point and the, how long the team has been together and the sort of culture and dynamics of how your team functions. I think from a, from a human factor standpoint, and seeing this in many different forms and varieties in different countries, in, in the military and civilian world and whatnot, I think that the perhaps, and this is purely my hypothesis, I have no evidence to support this, the best structure might be uh, a combination of those two. Um, if an experienced trauma surgeon or anesthesiologist walks in and sees a patient with an endotracheal tube that looks appropriately placed and that you can see chest rise, but one side of the chest is really not rising and there's subcutaneous emphysema going up the right side of his chest with clear indications of trauma, do you really need to sit there and, uh, and go through step by step before you get to decompressing that side of the chest? I mean, that almost seems very silly, right? But ultimately, you can get into trouble if you don't at some point revert to a very structured and careful review system by system. So I think perhaps the best system might integrate those two where you can have someone who has the experience, who has the ability to pattern match and recognize, very quickly say, okay, pause for just a second. There's clearly something wrong here. We're going to fix it. And then return to a much more methodical uh, review of yeah. the patient. Yeah, that's the exact example I was thinking about. I was at Vanderbilt as a visiting professor, gave a talk on hemorrhage. They had a trauma page right after my lecture. I said, you want to come down and watch? So I go down to the emergency room and very structured approach. Whoever I was following brought, brings me in the room, introduces me to the ED charge nurse who's getting ready for the patient there. And she says, oh, this is how observers work. You stand here. And there was a little taped box on the floor that said, observer, <laughs> don't say anything. Like a cat. Yeah. And so I stood there and I watched. And it was a multi-traumas, MVC, and that guy had some injuries, and they intubated him, which was cringeworthy, but successful. And then I'm standing there. I knew for 15 minutes that he had attention pneumothorax. I was 
just dead certain of it, standing there. And it took them 15 minutes to get to that because they finally got to chest X-ray and somebody identified he had a pneumothorax. It was fascinating, but I couldn't say anything. So <laughs> at, at shock trauma, I would have walked over and hit my resident in the back You're of the head. Said, hey, <laughs> hey, here's a pneumothorax. And, and we would have moved on. Yeah. Kasha, clearly they weren't incorporating ultrasound into their primary or <laughs> secondary survey. How do you feel about that? The way I trained, we actually used this on every single trauma activation. And I think from one hand, I know that people say it a lot, that you, you know, your past is not sensitive enough and this and that and whatnot. But I think that one, if you use it routinely, first of all, you get way better at it. You integrate it way better into the entire care system. You're not like into each other's way constantly. You do it quickly. You do, and also you learn to, I know you should do it stepwise and then all this, but again, we're talking about pattern recognition, right? You, you have a little bit of this aha moment and jump straight in because that's what you think is the most pertinent issue, quickly confirming. And then, and then you can go back and then you can restructure and rescan and reevaluate and do the whole, you know, obvious, uh, the whole structure of the, of an e-fast or whatever the thing that you're, you know, study that you're performing. But I think the better you are at it again, like, just like with any other skill, you're going to go for pattern recognition and jump straight in and know what to look for. And I think it, um, it helps to incorporate it into, in, incorporate it into every, um, single trauma, you know, activation and make it easier for the entire team rather than, well, we'll do it this time and not that next time. Oh, no, no, no. It's not necessary this time. It's, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. I also, I would also add that I think it's important. And this is kind of from my perspective as a trainee, um, understanding that Coming from a pre-hospital background, coming from my background in the military, and realizing now that uh, I was just, I just had the cliff notes, right? There's way more to all of this than uh, than I had even understood before. And so now incorporating all or trying desperately to incorporate all this new knowledge, I need some sort of structure to that. So I'm used to my very rudimentary pre-hospital uh, assessment and the interventions that I'm used to doing. Um, I think it's helpful now as a trainee to have that very specific, very structured way of looking at things because it allows me to contextualize everything and it allows me to put everything in a system that I can process. And then over time, when you see how more experienced people are just essentially cutting to the chase because they recognize the pattern that's going on, you can begin to develop that. But I think it would be very, very difficult to just try and train people to do pattern recognition, for example. Yeah. Important to do it, but um, just doing that without the background of a full exactly. comprehensive assessment would, uh, I think might be folly. Mark, I know you feel pretty strongly about um, forcing a provider to adhere to a strict protocol, ABCDE primary survey, and some of the limitations that are out there in regards to certain programs. Well, I think the first thing is, as we've highlighted, it's, it's whether we're doing this vertical or horizontal approach where, you know, it's all going on at the same time or whether you could methodically work through. That's, that's the first thing. And I think exactly as we've highlighted, that's down to the experience of your team or, or if you're not winning and you don't, and then you go back to basics and let's work down the system. Um, in terms of which system you use, as long as it's one that works, because at the end of the day, whether you're using CABC, whether you're using March, whatever you use, they're, they're the same. There's no, there's no real difference. Uh, and, and I think that that's the bottom line. And interesting when you're talking about it too, bringing up the training thing, when someone's really sick, that 
sort of the the methodical approach goes out the window. So it goes right. right to the pattern recognition, fix the problem, then then we'll talk about it. Yeah, and that's back to our fast thinking and yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. end of the bed doesn't look right. I'm worried. <laughs> Fascinating conversation. So to transition to an out-of-hospital topic, nevertheless involving tactical or pre-hospital physicians, we had Stephen Solid talking about cooperation between EMS, police, fire, and rescue during active shooter scenarios. And he primarily operates in uh, Germany, if I'm not mistaken. And then Timo Jama, who is a tactical emergency physician in Finland, and sort of discussing his experience over the last 10 years. And that was one of the uh, highlights of the conference, especially with uh, the illustration of the differences between the Franco-German model of EMS, which really uh, pushes for a physician in the pre-hospital space versus the U.S. or the U.K. models, which are not that pre-hospital physician focused. I mean, there's certainly been lots and lots of talk even outside the, the conference sessions you know, the, around all this, hasn't there? I think we've all been quite shocked um, how how many of these teams do employ, you know, very high-skilled and senior positions. Um, not necessarily in the red zone, the hot zone, we're very, very close to it and pushing close to it. And there's obviously been the debate about whether you better go the paramedic or whether you train the police officers or the firefighters or... Well. Um, I think we've all been quite quite intrigued by that. But the one thing that keeps coming out for me is that if you are going to involve physicians, they've got to be Im embedded and they've got to train with the police officers and with the firearms guys. They can't just parachute in as and when, like you might bring an air ambulance stock in just at a particular job. They've got to be part of the organisation. Where you get those from? I don't know. Military? Timo talked, well, Timo talked a little bit about selection. He wouldn't tell us exactly how they select the positions, but clearly there's some arduous training involved and there's also presumably some stuff about whether they actually can work well with the rest of the team. So if you put someone in who doesn't integrate with the law enforcement officers or the military, it's just not going to work, is it? It doesn't matter how good a doctor they are if they can't do the other stuff. Yeah, liability. I've yeah. seen that. It absolutely has mm. to do with how well you're incorporate or you can be incorporated into the team which has a specific mission rather than your skill set. I know working with the New Jersey State Police, they have incredible criteria about, uh, uh, not formalized criteria, but in other words, who do they accept within their little microcosm of society or their team or the stack when you're talking about a tactical operation. And of course, you have to be physically capable, but also whether you're male or female, you have to be able to banter with the guys, sort of uh, accept some of their humor. And that allows for the processes of trust and endearment and friendship to really blossom, which when you're in the thick of it or in the hot zone, they know that they can rely on you, not only as someone who's part of a team, but as somebody who is able to provide care under fire. Yeah, I think it's absolutely critical that the physician that's chosen that goes forward is not a liability. You can't be putting their lives at risk because you lose your cool. It's the mental component uh, more than anything um, that you need to have. And they talked about, you know, doing the uh, looking you in the eyes before letting you uh, go forward with them. What do you look like? Do you look like you're about to lose it? Do you look like you're you you got it your your shit together? Um, you know, however they decide to accept you into their group, you do, you do really have to, um, 
accept the fact that you can't be a liability. And oftentimes it's physicians, especially like on the U.S. side of care, but in any kind of an ED setting, we kind of used to functioning as leaders. We take it for granted. And you made a very valid point saying you are being accepted into a group. So it is on us whether you are a physician, no matter how many fellowship trainings and how much expertise you have to humble yourself. This is an honor and a privilege that you are being accepted into this group, and this is on you to actually adapt to that group and to make sure that you really understand what this group is all about and what's their culture and how do they function and how do they play together and, and how do they work together. And that's a really important factor and a really important thing because otherwise, oftentimes, even when it's just for training, it often happens you come to any military, tactical, civilian, pre-hospital um, uh, environment as a um, as an educator, and somebody starts introducing you. Oh, this is Doctor So and So, and they and I'm like, no, 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 stop, stop. I have a first name. It's really great to be here. I'm really happy to join you. And by the time we are done, by the, by the end of the day, it will be on you and all of you here to judge whether I, it was worth it and whether I was worth it being part of that group and being invited into your group for that time. So how are you adding value to the team in general? And sort of just uh, to go out of order here, um, Mark, you were uh, focusing on the importance of integration or having somebody, a tactical provider, embedded within the team? Yeah, I, I think that, that comes back to, to the last point, really. The fact that um, it was highlighted by at least one of the speakers that you are just one asset in the team. There are the breaches, there are the snipers, there is the physician, there is... The, and, but I think you can never be like that if you just, as I said before, just parachute into the particular incident. You, you've got to train with them, live with them, interact with them on a day-to-day basis. The other interesting point that you, you drew out in, in the, the open conversation was, was the fact that they're reassured by having someone with a greater skill set, which I don't think any of us really registered before. And I know we were discussing this. And so let's just pause and explain to the audience exactly what we're talking about. So during the panel conversation with Matthew Langlois, who was a raid physician who responded to the Bataclan attack and is an embedded tactical anesthetist with the Parisian SWAT team, and also with our Israeli doctor, Ishe Osfield, who is a cardiothoracic surgeon that works with the special forces, they were actually really promoting the concept of a tactical physician. And in the U.S. and the U.K., that is a rare concept. Typically, we have a tactical EMS provider, a tactical paramedic. And the skill set is not going to be very different in regards to care under fire. You're decompressing attention pneumothorax, you're throwing on tourniquet, or you're doing some simple airway maneuvers, uh, jaw thrust, chin lift, maybe a supraglottic, but highly unlikely. And the point that was brought out is there may be some psychological advantages to having a physician potentially on your tactical team. I think it was a little more, there was a little throwaway comment about cost. And uh, it was very much what we can afford to have doctors. So, and it was almost, if you can have a paramedic who's tactical or a doctor who's tactical, well, we'll have a doctor, thank you. And we were sort of discussing earlier whether that was down to maybe they can use an enhanced skill that is beyond paramedic practice currently because it's new and it's fresh, you know, whether it's Reboa or whether it's something else, you know, that, that. So that, that was certainly one possibility. But I think at the end of the day, it, as you say, the skills that you're going to use is that, you know, so simple at that level that, it could be a doctor, it could be a paramedic, but their view was very strong on this. 
I, I don't think it's about the interventions. I think it's much more about the pattern recognition. Here's somebody with maybe more experience who will more quickly recognize which of those skills to apply and how to do it. Which is going to mean you, you're going to need to put pretty senior people in that situation. Right, which sounds insane to yeah. us in the United States, I would well, say. When, you, when your organization starts losing them, that's yeah. the point where you reevaluate, you reevaluate it. And we have to think about that, I think, when you're thinking about a civilian HEMS model when you've got positions on a helicopter. In the military, that's worked very well, but um, you can imagine that with a limited number of doctors in the military, that model can fall down very quickly when you start losing, losing airframes. There was an interesting yes. scenario described, wasn't there, where um, the, one of the doctors had actually got lost and fallen behind the team and suddenly was confronted by his, by his own firearms officers. Yeah. And you can just imagine in the debrief, um, and especially if he'd got shot, um, that would have just ended that overnight, I would have thought. Yes. The integration is really paramount. Uh, you need to be embedded within that unit, know how they operate, know their inherent culture, and not be a liability to the mission. And that was, uh, I was sort of trying to draw that out in the panel. How do you uh, dice out the ethics in that situation? As providers, we take an oath to do no harm. But in regards to the international physicians who are interviewing and were actually uh, deployed in the tactical environment, they do carry firearms because they're pushing into the hot zone. Scary. Yeah. The, the, well, the argument was a public health one, actually, and it's... You can construct a, a non-firearm example of it, but idea being, if we shoot this person, we're going to save a lot more lives. It, it moves the Hippocratic Oath to a different place. Mm -hmm. So another concept that was brought out is, in Paris, they said that in the RAID team, the RAID team, their tactical SWAT team, that the reason they only uh, employ tactical physicians is for the decision-making capability and what Dr. Langlois brought to light was the accelerated flow of patient extraction. Yeah, I think uh, he, uh, Dr. Langlois, uh, brought up the point that um, he had the, um, yesterday he talked about uh, the, the nest being essentially in the red zone and that it's dynamic. And where I've heard of mass casualty incidents and uh, active shooter incidents that have happened in the recent uh, past, um, oftentimes we hear about communication breakdown, but also another thing we hear about is we set up the CCP or someone set it up for us and it was in the stupidest place when we realized it was in the most ridiculous place possible, but they were almost paralyzed in that, well, now we can't move it. Whereas Dr. Langlois, uh, his talk brought up the fact that it's dynamic, it can be moved, and Perhaps that's where the physician's role is, that the decision-making, the senior-level decision-making of where things can be, where they're going to go, and uh, and that's what we brought to, to bear, in his opinion, in, uh, in uh, the tactical situation, the, the physician um, decision-making. To tie it to the earlier discussion, it's more the senior physician, higher-order thinking. It's not just this patient's sick, but it's also these patients are well, let's get them out of here, uh, it's we can move this uh, the, the out of the box and stepping out of the protocols. Part of it, I think, is something that is much easier for a physician to do often in that situation. Plus, if the provider is embedded within the team, he or she holds some level of authority with the team as well. So while and the, trust. 
authority and trust. So while the primary group is focused on threat suppression, he may go in with a secondary group under force protection and start directing them for extraction of patients, which is in a U.S. model, even in the rescue task force where you have, might have firefighters or EMS providers under police protection, it's difficult to direct assets which you're not integrated with. And that's it. My, my opinion as a, as a paramedic would be, and granted I'm biased now that I'm going to medical school, but um, uh, I will say that it's, it's such a force multiplier to have someone with a higher level of training there to help you out. Uh, and for those who sit around... As long around as they're and, not a dick. Right, as long as, as, long as they're not a pain in the butt. As long as, as long as we, they've met all those other prerequisites that we kind of talked about, they're appropriately trained, they understand the environment, they understand the team. Uh, and that's because if anyone has ever actually done this for real, you're like, if you're the paramedic doing the treatment and the triage in, in the hot zone, you're like a one-legged man in a butt-kicking contest, man. It is really, really hard. So and so when you're extracting people, providing interventions, bringing somebody to a CCP, and the team leader says, I think we need to move the CCP, now you have to direct all the movements, and by the way, you had already had this model in your head about how you're going to get people out of a crashed helicopter, out of a room, out of a building, and then you have to pause and then re-engage with that. If you could have someone standing there in the nest or in the CCP or wherever to help in that decision-making process to increase the flow, it just makes my life so much easier. Uh, and on top of that, from a performance standpoint, now you've actually divided that cognitive load in two. You have some one person with eyes on doing a lot of the technical stuff, doing the extrication, extraction, the immediate interventions, and you have someone at the CCP who has an, a, a larger view of how these patients are going to be moved, who really needs to go first. The sub-triage of you have red and then you have red-red, right? Who really needs to go now? Um, and that is really, really helpful, especially when you can't pattern match or recognize things, especially when you're unsure to have someone else there who can say, you know what, no, I think he can stay. This guy needs to go first is incredibly helpful. It's a big de-stressor. The cognitive offloading. Of yeah, the absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, on the cognitive side, the physician brings probably a finer understanding of risk versus benefit and thinking that way because we are all trained to think that way. And then whether justified or not, confidence in a decision once a decision is made. And I think we overlook the, the fact that a lot of these, a lot of the skills, as we have mentioned in tactical environment, are, are relatively simple. They're relatively straightforward. But I can tell you, you get into tactical field care and you're doing some interventions or trying to get vascular access or whatnot, and we have a lot of tools and tricks, but I have seen the best medics still struggle sometimes to perform procedures. On the civilian side, we've had patients that we can't decompress them because of their body habitus. You have trouble getting access to the, to the lateral aspect of the chest. And I can tell you on more than one occasion, I wish that I had someone that was more experienced than me that can tell me if I'm, you know, had to troubleshoot what I can do to, to get the, the particular skill done. So I think we, we overlook that a lot, especially because we think about tactical medicine as being relatively healthy the individuals of good body habits, not necessarily the civilian environment. And we've also looked, overlooked the fact that your training as a tactical medic isn't necessarily designed to address some of the needs of various patient subpopulations with a number of comorbidities that I don't see on a regular basis and might be sort of outside of my perspective or range of thought uh, that someone who works in a trauma center or is very familiar with this as a physician might have. So I think there are other 
advantages that we could argue may or may not demonstrate a statistical benefit, but in, in a case-by-case basis, I think can be very helpful. Dr. Ostfeld also brought to our attention in regards to his experience uh, operating in Israel. Knowing the motivations of the attacker can actually be quite helpful in regards to the response to the event. What did you guys think about that? I think that it presupposes that you know what the motivations are early on, and you don't necessarily know. I mean, the, the, there were two two main um, types of attacker, the ones that uh, were suicidal and were going to die at the end of their mission, whatever happened, and the ones who were going to take hostages or, or at least intended to survive after the, their mission. Um, and I don't think that you can tell when you're, when you're confronted with, with uh, an example. We, we, we could talk about the Las Vegas shootings where... It's still Actually, a mystery. It's a mystery, but there's a suggestion the guy intended to survive, even though he didn't. How would you know for the first hour or two? So the dichotomy, or the dichotomy, or dichotomy times two, etc., was: is the attacker suicidal versus non-suicidal, and then engaged versus disengaged? So maybe we could just highlight some examples of different events. And so 9/11, engaged, right? They were uh, the hijackers were on the plane, mm-hmm. so they're right there. Uh, but the suicidal question was very important. And I think one of the things that happened on 9-11 is on the fourth plane, after the first three had flown into a building, it was pretty clear to the people on the plane that they were suicidal, Mm. at which point no reason not to storm the cockpit. As opposed to the Boston Marathon. Which was a disengaged event, right? Left a bomb, went away, clearly intended to survive or get away with it. And... Very different tactical implications was one of the points he made. I think also um, uh, Colonel Ostfeld brought up the fact that up until relatively recently, the attacks may have been uh, more sophisticated, had uh, command and control elements. There were more than one person involved. And with those kinds of plans, it's easier possibly, to discover them before their intentions, uh, before they're able to carry out their plans, because sophisticated plans require logistics and communications, and that's where we can catch them, potentially, versus the lone wolf, for lack of a better term, or the single person who watches one video, decides that day they're going to um, do misdeeds. That's very difficult, if impossible, to predict and or at least stop all of them. You know, our intel communities in all of our respective countries are scratching their heads as to how they're going to face these these new threats. Uh, along those lines, the intentional vehicular assault is something that, you know, troubles me because there is no obvious solution to that. You know, the car that you drive in every day can become a weapon of mass destruction. And it's certainly challenging to yeah. contemplate those things. I remember hearing uh, recently uh, we had an attack in Edmonton, um, Alberta, Canada, and some of the lessons learned from previous attacks in other places were that the vehicle, I, I can't remember if there's a term for it, but basically you're supposed to intentionally ram the vehicle in a way that it's disabled, basically flipped over and disabled, or Something happens to it so that you can uh, basically control the situation uh, relatively rapidly. And the Edmonton police uh, force need to be um, congratulated uh, in the fact that they made a very quick decision that this needed to be done, that this, well, the intentions were to harm people with the vehicle. 
they made that decision quickly and that they needed to neutralize the threat and they did it very quickly and they saved lives. Um, no lives were lost. People were injured, but, uh, no lives were lost. And this could have been catastrophic because, um, it, there was, um, I think a football game going on or some kind of, um, mass gathering of, of people going on in Edmonton. And so at least, you know, our, our, our police forces are, are learning from other events. In regards to learning and responding to events, uh, a talk that I found incredibly uplifting and tactical with these specifics was Kate Pryor, who joined us on the podcast yesterday, Dr. Wibble. What do you guys think about her talk in regards to CRM top tips, crew resource management? Well, Kate was my trauma anesthesia fellow eight years ago, and if I'd known she was that good a speaker, I would have put her to work uh, well before this. I thought it was an exceptional talk. It, it was hugely powerful, wasn't it? I mean, the, the first sort of five minutes, I think the, the Twitter account just plummeted because everyone just sat there in utter awe as she told the story of, of that particular that particular job on the MERT team. The, was, the big sick patient when she was deployed as part of her MERT team, M-E-R-T. Some tactics, though, she talked about was uh, declaring the emergency early on so that the entire team is incredibly aware of the potential ramifications of the event or the response. I think that's very useful. It kind of plays into the shared mental model. If you've got a team that's made up of a doctor, paramedic, and some nurses, um, all looking after multiple casualties at the same time, um, there comes a point where you might need help from someone else or you need the rest of the team to know that you're doing something difficult. And one of the things was they would have um, silence from the, from the rest of the crew and from the pilots during a difficult procedure. Um, but declaring it, making it all explicit, just means that everyone else knows what's going on and probably um, makes it a bit easier to get it right. In other words, the provider is about to engage in a risky uh, intervention, which is deemed to be necessary in order to salvage the patient. And uh, the idea is to immediately alert the rest of the team that they are, by definition, cognitively overloaded. And I've had that experience working in the emergency department as well, where I'm in the middle of the resuscitation, incredibly sick patients, and nurses are coming in regards to other patients I may be managing and saying, hey, can I get a potassium order or can I get a diet order? And I don't even hear them. And the perception is, is that I'm being rude or off-putting, but really I'm overwhelmed with the task and really focused in or honed in on that particular patient and the resuscitation. It's interesting because you hear another good example is when you hear radio traffic through control in the emergency services. And I know um, fire service can be really quite abrupt and it, it's just wait out. That's it. And you, there's no comeback on it. You know you need to wait out. And But it's not rude. But to any, anyone listening on, they might interpret it in that way. But it's very, very clear and there's no, no, no dispute. In the air industry, uh, it's called a sterile co cockpit. On takeoff and landing, there's no unnecessary chatter. There's no chit-chat. What, what were you doing? What's going on? No one comes in and, and uh, interrupts you. It's uh, known that it's a risky maneuver, takeoff and landing. And, uh, and so you're, you basically put the, all of your team's attention to that, uh, to that one task and people only uh, speak when it's it's necessary, and I think we should adopt that um, more often 
in uh, in trauma and just medical procedures in general that are high risk. I found it really helpful um, during some of, like, still back in medical school, I've done some rotations in Germany, and in some of the hospital, what really got my attention was the fact that when you have an EMS handoff of a patient, everybody is just quiet, and they are talking so that everybody is on the same page, and things are being written down quickly on the board, just like in a certain structured way, this is the handover. What um, I found sometimes disrupting during handoffs in trauma bay, EMS to, you know, ED handoff, everybody is talking about at the same time. And you're like, well, wait a minute, where is our focus? What is it all about? So I think, yes, it's, it's very helpful. Let's focus. This is that, you know, this is going to take much less time when we all focus on this and not that afterwards asking each other, what did they say? What did they say? What would they say? What was his, you know, what was his uh, glucose? What was his heart rate? What was his blood pressure? Those kind of things to make it really more structured and everybody pays attention to what is happening at that very moment. So I think it's useful. That's formalized in our trauma centers, probably most of the UK now, where we have a, a formalized structured handover from the paramedics and the silence from the team. We've started doing that on our cardiac critical care unit in Birmingham now as well, where we allow all of the faffing around, moving cables, swapping patients across the monitor, and then we stop once the nurses have done that, and we have a brief structured handover from the cardiac anaesthetist or the card and the cardiac surgeon, um, and it's done in a very formalized process. People thought it would take a long time and it would slow things down, but actually it saves time. Um, and the, 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 the key thing in getting that into cardiac intensive care was saying we can do this for trauma patients who are dying, we can do it quickly, and actually improves their care, it doesn't delay things. Something simple that we do, um, again, very very methodical on the handover net, absolute silence in the room for it, but all the pre-hospital vitals and mechanism go up on a place where everybody can see. So, you know, 40 people walk in the room, nobody even has to ask what's coming in, what their vitals are, you just know where to look at the board and there it is. Uh, it's a technique that can be used informally, too, so it's a good one to have in your bag. So in my elective anesthesia practice, we'll be starting a case, and the surgeons are chatting about the basketball game, and the nurses are counting instruments, and I'm working with a CRNA, and we're intubating the patient. Every so often, that doesn't go so well. And what I've learned is, at that moment, if you say something like, get the code cart, all of a sudden, everybody in the room is paying attention. You get a lot more focus, and, and you can get, and even if I don't need the code card, I have what I need, which is the rest of the room to shut up and pay attention or help me in whatever it is I need help with. Although it might have a downside, too, because then when you actually really need a code card, they will be like, <laughs> It doesn't happen that often, but it's, it's a trick to have in the, in the toolkit. You could make an argument for just limiting what you're allowed to say during some of these situations. It's actually probably only a few hundred words you need to, to use. Maybe it should be like on an, on an airline where there are only certain phrases that are going to be used during takeoff and landing. And we could say we'll just limit what we're going to do during this process rather than being lots of extra extraneous chatter about certain things that we do, certain things that we say, um, and then everyone knows what's going on and actually makes it all much more controlled. I think culturally from the state side, uh, taking the ego out of the patient resuscitation or in taking individual egos out of the patient resuscitation is incredibly valuable in focusing, surprisingly, on patient care. So it's not about me, how many letters are after my last name, how many people are working for me. 
but rather to let EMS give a very clear, concise, detailed report without, you know, distraction to relay any interventions that have been done, additional information that may provide valuable insight in regards to that patient's care, uh, sharing of photos of the scene, which may or may not be relevant, and really having profound respect for my pre-hospital colleagues to say that, you know what, you guys are really freaking good at what you do, and I trust you guys to operate in austere environments, and I really want to know what you're what you guys did and what your interpretation of events are, that's it. Taking the ego out of the resuscitation. We said, I mean, we, we actually use in the ICU, we use the word focus because we feel it's non-threatening. You know, and, and if we're doing a resource and things aren't going too well and the chaos is creeping in, one of the team will just, you know, focus team and everybody knows, oh, right, that everyone takes breath, takes a moment, and then we, then we move on. And, uh, you know, it's just far less threatening than many of the other expressions and words that you could use. <laughs> it's like with sports, you know, when you're a team, you have to be a team player and you have to all play together. And one person on a team doesn't win the event. So you cannot, we all just have to realize and always remember that you cannot function with the rest, without the rest um, of your team. And that goes with the flat hierarchy as well that, that Kate was talking about on the aircraft. In regards to the flat hierarchy, when an emergency has been declared, the provider is engaged in a life-saving intervention. The flat hierarchy component I thought was relevant because it's not saying don't interrupt me no matter what, your opinion is less relevant to me, but it's rather saying I'm engaged in a highly critical task, but nevertheless, every single member on that aircraft has the ability to hit the emergency brake, and she shared the story of like the stop. So it's like a stop. If somebody yells stop, it's a hard stop. No matter what, everyone stops. The idea is if one person feels that a patient's life is in danger or the thought process is flawed or a, an alternative intervention that is less risky could be attempted, um, everyone has an equal voice in regards to the flat hierarchy model. So that's something that we do pretty well in the British military, um, but we have quite a lot of uh, work with other militaries and um, particularly uh, people from further afield and it often seems to be very difficult and the idea that a nurse could tell one of the MDs what to do is very difficult for some people to understand it's just so culturally different yeah. particularly if it's a nurse who's a woman and the doctor's a man which is often the case with some of the people we work with and trying to convey that actually this is good for the patient um, and we want, we want this to work like this the lance corporal is going to tell the lieutenant colonel that he has to stop. Mm -hmm. um, but not, not everyone gets that for cultural reasons. I think we've got it working pretty well just now. That's a, it remains a common uh, problem in civilian where the nurse said, I knew he was about to open the wrong side of the head, yeah. <laughs> but doesn't speak up. On that note, <laughs> children are or are not simply small adults. <laughs> Professor. They are little adults. They're just little human beings and we treat them like every single trauma patient. Don't be afraid of them. That's the main problem because it's so rare to see pediatric trauma and people get emotionally involved. They're just little people. That's it. I think that was uh, fascinating. I know this is uh, people like to banter about this comment but the reason you're espousing this philosophy is actually to decrease provider anxiety. Absolutely. So the, the, the number one problem, I think, with, with people coming into a pediatric uh, trauma resuscitation 
is just fear because it's, it's not something they deal with routinely. Um, it's all easy. The Breslow tape's right there. The, the calculations are pretty simple. Um, and I think the key is, like we've been talking about, preparing. So you get the EMS call, you make the calculations based on the child's age, you put them up um, so everybody can see them and they're aware of them so that when the child comes in, the bandwidth can focus on the, the clinical care. I thought that was a really great takeaway tip. So EMS is obviously going to, uh, you know, call in and give you a report on your traumatic pediatric patient. Of course, or most likely an age or estimated age is going to be part of that report. So why not use that time instead of talking about the basketball game or twiddling your thumbs or this, that, and the other, already preempt and do your calculations, whether it has to do with fluids that need to be administered or if the patient is ill and needs an RSI, going ahead and calculating your medications. If the pediatric patient is bradycardic, you can already go ahead and uh, calculate your code dose medications, which significantly reduces the anxiety within the recess bay itself. Yeah, having everything ready getting the tubes ready, the right sizes, and a, a number of options available at, at, at hand. You had some uh, pretty neat takeaways in regards to tricks and tips for tube sizes as well. Can you summarize that via audio? Yes, that is, that's due to Brent King, who um, is at Shock Trauma now. He was uh, head of the DuPont Children's CMO, so good businessman, fantastic uh, guy. Um, I called him, I said, what? I'm a trauma surgeon. I'm not a, a pediatrician. What do I need to, to let people know? And he said the two tricks, uh, one times, two times, four times. So one times is the ET tube. So you pick your ET tube based on their age. Two times is the Foley. So say you have a, a number four ET tube. So you've used an eight French Foley. And the chest tube is four times. So four times four, 16 is going to be the correct size chest tube. Very simple. So for a four-year-old patient, let's say, for example, 1x, 2x, 4x. 1x, 2x, 4x. So then I'd have to look at the chart. So what's a four-year-old? Probably, Mark, you can help. There. Five. So yeah, I mean, anesthesia. Yeah, so, so uh, 82 of a five. So their their fully should be 10. And then a normal chest tube, basically, 24 punch. Yeah. I also heard uh, four um, you know, measure calculation to that, that three times the ET tube size would be the depth of ET tube insertion. Okay. Do our Anissa disagree with that? There's actually little markers <laughs> on the ET tube. <laughs> and Don't I give use, away all the secrets. No. <laughs> those little markers go just at the level of the cords. <laughs> That, you know, I pay slightly less attention to that in an adult because I know how deep it's supposed to go in a child where millimeters make a difference. Mm -hmm. um, then I am, I am looking at that line and I'm watching it go to the level of the cords and stopping when I, when I see it at that level. There you guys go. All <laughs> the secrets of the anesthesiologist exposed on the EMS Nation mm -hmm. podcast. So we had a couple of other lectures that we just wanted to mention. Uh, Dr. Hampton, you are exquisitely passionate about point-of-care ultrasonography, and you brought a, a thought-provoking lecture to our audience, and using uh, ultrasound during a mass casualty incident, which is not a concept that many people are familiar with. So, first of all, Kasha, 
because I thought we have this flat character here and we are part of the team. You're going to get because a lot I of posts. <coughs> it's going to be Dr. Hampton. They're going to be sending you to the mili no, military base not. in Germany. Please not. No, no. Over there I get enough. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. So that's, that's enough. I don't, so here I can be just casual. So my thought on the whole use of um, ultrasound in a mass casualty incident, it comes down to the fact that, like you said earlier yourself, not every red is the same red, not every yellow is the same yellow. And it has been shown in multiple reports of ultrasound use in mass casualty incident that it actually helps to triage your patient faster to appropriate care that they need. And I'm not advocating for just getting a mobile ultrasound scanning team and running around and scanning everybody. I want that to, to see that ultrasound as part of your clinical assessment, as part of what you do otherwise, with that little exception that, you know, we say let's do dynamic assessments, let's reassess, let's reassess, let's reassess, but serial abdominal exam, how unless it's done maybe by the same person, how objective is that? But if you do serial ultrasound and you see, well, an hour ago I didn't see free fluid, but my patient is doing slightly worse, and now at once I do see free fluid. And I can give you an example that I had a pediatric patient with a renal injury that actually arrived as a transfer from an outside hospital, had a CAT scan then that showed no free fluid in the abdomen. Mm -hmm. But I was anyways doing a fast at the time of transfer. I was doing an e-fast on the child, and I'm like, wait a minute, I think there is some fluid around the kidney. And they were like, no, 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 the, the, the fast was, you know, the um, CT scan was negative. Nevertheless, an hour and a half later, I'm like, I'm going to just go look one more time. And at once I see this huge, big, you know, amount of free fluid actually within the um, kidney capsule. So that child had a kidney injury. She didn't need an intervention, but, you know, but it could have happened that she might have needed one. As I'm saying, this is a very objective data, that one image that speaks for thousand words. You know, you, in the heat of a moment, trying to describe what you've seen and how it felt when you touched the patient belly, well, it might be slightly worse, it might be slightly better, or not. No, I want that objective in kind of information that can be redone, reassessed, and reevaluated, and no matter who does it, the outcome is going to be the same. So I'm saying, let's integrate ultrasound in the care of a patient within a mass casualty incident, especially, especially if the resources are scarce and the number of injured by far outweighs the capacities of the healthcare system where that mass casualty incident takes place. So clinical integration, clinical integration, and one more time, clinical integration. And what I saw already, people were posting some tweets about like, well, what's the chance that you're going to have an MCI patient with a positive EFAS and it's going to be low? But then again, point of care ultrasonography is not meant to rule pathology out. It's oftentimes not sensitive enough to do that. What it's meant to do is to rule pathology in. When you see it and it's there, then it's real. And then it's 100% and it's for sure because it is very specific. So we're looking for those 
Not so much no answers, it's not there. No, we're looking for the yes answers. And those yes answers, when they're there, they're pretty darn specific. And that's why I think you can make a difference in those big situations where you have to reassess, reassess, and make decision which red patient is going to go now. I think it's going to make the difference. And it's been done as early as 30 years ago during the Armenian earthquake. So by now, with much better technology, much more portable and smaller and more accurate devices, I think this is definitely the right tool in the right place. You also spoke eloquently about empowering your medics. Why is that so important? Yes, I am so, I'm totally passionate about teaching and giving, giving that skill, point, point of care ultrasonography to the medics. So that comes from my experience with training the military medics and seeing how easily they pick up a skill and how good they are at it. And what I think is that the medic might not always because they don't see as many patients, they don't perform the scans on a daily basis, but they can definitely obtain meaningful images and they can actually show you those images very easy in some shape or form, whether it's being transmitted, you know, over the distance or you're right there taking a look at those pictures. And, you know, they can have some basic already, some um, assessment, some first interpretation of those images. But, um, but you can, you know, it's much more of an easy discussion when you have members of your team saying, hey, I did this and this and that, I think this and this and that, hey, look, and this is the picture. In three seconds, you have all your answers. And I think especially if we think of like, you know, mass casualty incidents when you have this position and making decisions and, and you, you can't do it all on your own. And that's why if you empower your medics with that skill, you are going to be so much better off as a team. I love it. We're also on the precipice of telemedicine as well. So even to reduce liability in a system where you are using uh, point-of-care ultrasonography with uh, paramedic providers, um, we're knocking on telemedicine's doorsteps, whether that's for stroke patients and deciding whether the patient needs uh, lysis or any number of things. The, the utility is uh, potentially limitless. It's interesting from a, a cultural terminology point of view. In the UK and Commonwealth countries, medic actually means doctor. Mm. So, can you explain for the European uh, and UK audience what you mean by medic as opposed to a doctor? So, I generally meant non-physician. When I speak of a medic, I, I mean the non-physician provider, whether that be a paramedic, whether that be a nurse, whether that be um, in the U.S., you know, like someone who has like a um, doctorate in nursing practice or a physician assistant, anybody who is a non-physician provider. My personal experiences with training, you know, medics, which means, you know, paramedics, um, the pre-hospital provider generally in the um, military environment, but I've also done some work with the civilian paramedics. That's a great question. So I think um, in the U.S., and we had a, a central document called the EMS Scope of Practice. So BLS is a basic life support. Uh, we have AEMT in the U.S., which is Advanced EMT, some additional uh, interventions to the scope of practice. We have our ALS provider, Advanced Life Support, and a pre-hospital physician. But nevertheless, your point is very well taken. In Spanish, for example, the word for physician is medico, which 
would translate roughly, uh, if you are well-versed on your cognates and Latin, to medic. So, very relevant scope of practice conversation. We are almost done, but we have so many anesthetists in this, on this panel that I think I would really like to run through this potential scenario because the consequences to overall patient care could be large. So, traumatic brain injury. We have a hypotensive, multi-trauma patient with a depressed GCS. How do I optimize my approach to this patient who we've decided, let's say, for example, requires an advanced airway? How am I managing fluids, especially if there's consideration of multi-trauma? Is there a set cocktail for RSI which would be optimal, or are there certain medications which would be suboptimal? And really, what does the literature tell us about TBI in general over the last 30 years? Uh, it tells you that we've made almost no progress in TBI. The, the care for the brain-injured patient is 100% supportive, and we hope to get better. But unlike hemorrhagic shock, when we've made major and dramatic advances in the last couple of decades, uh, management of the TBI patient is still very much uh, supportive, trying to prevent secondary brain injury, and hopefully they get better. And because we don't have any magic bullet that makes the brain better, we can't operate on it other than relieving hemorrhage. So there you are. Um, so you're a multi-trauma patient with a bad brain injury. Support the airway first. Uh, make sure they're adequately oxygenated. And then resuscitate them. And my take on resuscitation in that patient should be exactly what you would do for any other hemorrhaging patient, including deliberate hypotension, if you need it to stop their hemorrhage. Uh, because if they bleed to death, you don't have to worry about their brain injury. Mm. I guess we could, there's probably some other things we could say, which are that there's some things we know are bad for the uh, the brain injury patient. So we know now that um, hypothermia, so therapeutic hypothermia, doesn't work. In particular, in young people, it doesn't work. They're the ones you think it would work the best in. But it's associated with worse outcomes in them. I, I wouldn't say it that way. They don't. None of those silver bullets, whether you're talking about steroids or cold or oxygen or ketamine or narcotics or any of a hundred other chemicals that have been dropped on brain-injured patients, saying they don't work is wrong. They're all interventions. They will work in some patients some of the time. They don't work in the aggregate, and we don't yet have the smarts to know who they're going to work in. So the, the take-home the take from that, I guess, should be we shouldn't be doing them. Yeah. We do fever prevention, but not therapeutic hypothermia. Correct. That's exactly um, right. We'll keep their uh, carbon dioxide levels more or less normal. We'll avoid hyperventilation because that's bad for you. Right. Um, there's some interventions that people like to use, like hypertonic saline and mannitol, that are probably, in aggregate, probably neutral. Some of them are based on very dodgy data, like the mannitol stuff, where two of the main papers were fabricated. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. So you, you support the patient in the best way you can. Uh, in 20 years, I think we'll be much smarter, whether through better imaging or biomarkers or a combination of that, to know this intervention is right for this patient at this time to appropriately manage their inflammatory response to brain injury. But we're not that smart today. So the, the overall answer is do the right thing, keep them down the middle of the tracks, uh, and that's your best bet. How about hyperoxia and also is there an ideal RSI cocktail for this theoretical patient? <laughs> uh, oxygen fits in with all those other drugs. Um, mm -hmm. So we want to be in the middle. We want to be adequately oxygenated because we know that hypoxia is terrible. 
uh, for injured brain, but there's no evidence that giving more oxygen is helpful, and there's some evidence that it might be harmful. And again, it's probably some patients at some times it's good, and some patients at some times it's bad, and we don't know how to sort them out yet. RSI, uh, it's actually much less about the cocktail than about getting the tube in the right place quickly and avoiding the hypoxic insult. Mm -hmm. So... Um, what you're most familiar with. What you are most yeah. familiar with, both equipment and medications, is usually the right answer. I'm a, I'm a dinosaur, so propofol and sucks works fine. Mm -hmm. I'll fire that. <laughs> uh, I can't, can't get it anymore in the States, yeah, but yes, I was thiopental yeah. until You can't the get last... it in North America, period. Yeah, I, I was thiopental until the last day it yeah. went away, but yeah. And that is certainly unlikely to be on uh, EMS pharmaceutical list. So. <laughs> no, no, that would be shocked as well. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, here's our sign-off. This is Mark Forrest at Obidoc. Rick Dutton at Trauma Dinosaur. Kasia Hampton at KashMD. Leilani Doyle at Doyle Leilani. Andy Johnston at Army Crit Care. Susan Brundage at Trauma Masters. And Faison Arshad wishing everyone a safe tour.